Barnyard Language. We are Katie and Arlene, an Iowa sheep farmer and an Ontario dairy farmer with six kids, two husbands, and a whole lot of chaos between us. So kick off your boots, reheat your coffee, and join us for some Barnyard Language, honest talk about running farms and raising families. In case your kids haven't already learned all the swears from being in the barn, it might be a good idea to put on some headphones or turn down the volume. While many of our guests are professionals, they aren't your professionals. If you need personalized advice, consult your people. Hello and welcome to another episode of Barnyard Language. Katie and Arlene here giving you the weekly reports. Katie, what's happening in your play at your place, in your house? How are the guinea pigs? All the things. Um, I've decided that I'm gonna start measuring all time in how much crochet work I can get done while I'm waiting or while something's occurring. So this morning, my uh, work computer update took long enough that I was able to crochet the guinea pigs a nice, snuggly little bed. Oh, that sounds like it would be a while. Yeah, for an update that said it was going to be five minutes. Um, Yeah. It was not. It was not. Um, Guinea pigs are happy, I think. They seem seem happy. Um, Sheep run. As Katie cuts in and out, it's because she's looking at the guinea pigs, as usual. I am. Sorry. Uh, Cows are happy. Sheep are happy. It snowed, so the kids are happy. Uh, Both my kids tried to drop out of school this morning. They're pretty sure that kindergarten and first grade is really enough education. That should be good. When asked about their, their future plans, the boy child told me that he intends to color for a living, which I find hilarious because he hates coloring. And uh, the girl child told me she's going to be a guinea pig talker, which I assume is like a, a translator, maybe. Sure. Or just talking to guinea pigs. I don't know. So, yeah, I'm not I'm not quite clear on that, but she seemed pretty sure about it. So they both decided to go to school when I told them that she was going to miss her birthday party on Tuesday. And that the boy child was never going to have playdates again, because if he didn't care enough to go to school to see his friends, I didn't care enough to invite them over. Right. So, And then he might actually have to color all the time, too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and Daddy suggested that if he wasn't going to go to kindergarten, maybe he could come help Daddy at the uh, the feed warehouse where Jim works, and that he could sweep the whole warehouse and stack all the bags that, you know, way more than he does. And he decided that maybe going to kindergarten wouldn't be too bad. So, right, yeah. Wasn't the worst idea. Yeah, yeah, maybe tomorrow, but he went to school today. So how are things at your place, Arlene? Looks like the generator's not running anymore, so that's good. No, no, it's our first snow day of the year. So it started out as rain and turned into ice and then turned into snow. So it's that nice combination of all the weather in about a 12-hour period. The generator was only out briefly, but of course it was, you know, like right about the time that you would like to be sleeping. So that was not, not ideal, but we're lucky to have a generator and got things running again. So yeah, things are pretty good. We have a bit of a baby boom going on right now. I think the count the other day was 19 to calve between now and Christmas. And we had three in the past 24 hours. And of course, one of those was not one that we expected. So she was in a pen that was not easily accessible because she wasn't on the Up Close program yet. So we had to do a lot of moving around of gates and animals to get her out and into a stall. And so there's lots of bottle feeding going on. 
So the one good thing about a snow day is that then I had a bit more time to spend in the barn this morning and I could help my father-in-law out because he's typically calf care, calf care, but with a three-week early baby and two other newborns, there were a lot of bottles to feed this morning. So I could help him out with that and then come into the house and see what everyone was up to. I think that everyone is still in their pajamas. Um, they have consumed food. So, I mean, that's that's progress for, for a snow day at midday. And... I don't think there's too much else going on. My oldest is on the countdown to be done university her first semester. So she's got some exams to do, but we'll be done school mid-December. So she's excited to have almost a whole month off, which is nice. And the good thing about university is that because she's done exams in December, her Christmas break, there's nothing really hanging over her head in terms of schoolwork. So she gets to start a whole new set of classes in January versus a high school schedule where around here your exams aren't until mid-January so Christmas break is a break but you still have those classes looming ahead of you so I think she's looking forward to that and she's already given us a schedule of dates that she wants to milk so that's nice for me I'm thinking that I will get some of those some of those shifts off so that's fun and a whole bunch of appointments set up and we've got some fun stuff planned to just her and I, or her and my husband and I, while the other kids are still in school. So I'm looking forward to seeing her and having her back in the house for a few weeks. It'll be nice to have that backup help with the uh, 19 calves as well, I bet. Yes, yeah. that's right. I'm sure my father-in-law will enjoy having her around too for uh, <laughs> for bottle feeding. Because we'd like to have them on buckets pretty soon. But um, yeah, when they're all getting born at the same time, there's a, a lot of bottles. What's the prognosis like for a calf that's that early? Well, this one looks pretty spunky. It was it was trying hard to well, it was standing up already this morning, not not super steady. Um, yesterday wasn't drinking all that well, but this morning drank down almost a whole bottle. So, I mean, he seems to have uh, the will to live and is trying his best. So, I don't know. I wouldn't have said great yesterday, but yeah, he looks pretty good today. It seems like that will to survive is the biggest thing a lot of times you know we've had animals born full term perfectly healthy that just kind of drooped until they died and we've had animals that had no right to still be alive that have been totally fine so yeah yeah when she calved my husband went to check for twins because he thought you know like that that's fairly common if they're going to calve early that maybe it was twins but he seemed to be the only one so we'll see so far, so good. Or maybe he just had bigger plans than staying in there any longer. You know, got shit to do. He's got to get out. You know. Yeah. All right. Should we go ahead and introduce our guest for this week? I think we better. Bailey, you're not even our first guest from Saskatchewan. So we have covered your province a little bit. Of course, we know it's very big. Um, and we start each of our interviews with the same question. So this is a way for you to introduce yourself to our listeners. And we always ask, what are you growing? So that can be crops and kids and careers and businesses and all kinds of other stuff. So Bailey, what are you growing? Um, well, it depends on the day, but uh, we actually are grain farmers. So our grain that we farm is canola and durum. Sometimes we throw in a mix of lentils. But I often feel like I want to like pull my teeth out when we do lentils because there's always complications and it's slow and it never works out the way it, we plan it. So this year we actually didn't do lentils. Um, but I also grow like children because that's another thing that I do often. Um, 
We have chickens and ducks and goats, although we don't do that for like profits. That is something that my kids really like. And I often question my life choices, you know, when it comes to that stuff. But here we are. Yeah, that's right. And what ages of kids are we talking about? So I made some wonderful life choices and had three kids in three years. Wowza. Yeah, don't recommend. But my oldest, she is six. And my middle child is four. And my youngest is three. So my youngest and my middle child are technically Irish twins. So less than a year apart. It was a wedding. It was a good time. (laughs) That is impressive. And do you, are you full-time on the farm or do you have an off-farm job as well? Uh, I have many jobs. So I guess the running joke in our community is that I have a lot of irons in the fire and I'm the go-to girl. So I do a lot of volunteering. I actually volunteer on a recreation board in our community. So I do like, I run the hall and help keep that afloat. And that's kind of like our, our last staple in our really small community. I also, um, I'm the chair of our preschool board. So ensuring, you know, that we still have that in our community. And I am the chair of our SCC, which you guys would probably know it more as like a school board. Yeah. So, but we just, we have it or termed as like the school community council uh, in Saskatchewan. So I'm the chair of that for our school as well. I also, um, I teach uh, first aid and EMS. I actually have a career in EMS. And of course, when I had kids, it really did not work with the schedule. So then I went to the teaching portion of it. And then I was kind of voluntold um, to start a emergency management program for our RMs. So I'm actually the emergency management coordinator for nine different RMs and villages, creating a regional plan, which is actually one of the first in our province. And I'm actually pretty proud of that progress. Uh, It's been an ongoing headache for sure, but it's something that I'm really passionate about. And uh, I know people get confused too. And they say, well, you know, what would you do? Well, if there was a grass fire, you know, we would step in and we would help the local authorities like the municipalities manage that just because we are small rms compared to you know maybe other places um it we wouldn't have enough resources in our area to manage one disaster so essentially we just work as a group to kind of tackle uh tackle whatever disaster or situation it could be right yeah so you have a lot of free time it sounds like yeah and then kids (laughs) yeah yeah exactly I can see why the chickens and the goats and the ducks are uh, making you question mm. why you bother sometimes when you're managing a lot of different things. I know, and the kids like them. And, like, chickens are so stinky, and people go nuts over farm eggs, and it's, like, 10 o'clock at night, and I'm washing eggs, and I just think, like, I went to university for this. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Bailey, my kids are five and six, so... I gotcha. So for the Americans, what is an RM? Is that what you said? Ooh, rural municipality. I know in Alberta they call them MD, municipal districts. So I can't tell you what they call them in other provinces. But just because we don't live in a city, we live in the middle of nowhere. So, I mean, someone has to govern us, right? It's not quite the Wild West, but like sometimes it's really close to it. But yeah, so that would be our, who manages our roads and our infrastructure, things like that. Power, 
Right. So it'd be kind of like a county politics, potentially, or yeah, whatever your yeah, whatever your kind of s- small municipal level of yeah, government. I know as someone here, I mean, our closest bigger town of 8,000 people has one, I think one full-time firefighter. Everything else in the area is volunteers so that communication and resource management is so crucial because there's so much equipment and training that realistically they're going to need once every five years for any of these small departments. But when you need it, you need it right now. You know, and I think that really speaks to how important it is to have people in that role of coordinating that. Because when you have a grass fire or something, you don't want to be calling through a whole phone tree trying to figure out who knows what to do about it. You know, that's not, I don't think you ever call the fire department for something where you can wait a couple days to figure out what to do with it. You know, it's pretty, needs done right now. Yeah. I get that. And like, I mean, ours are all volunteer, but we're very fortunate because I think everyone is, because being so small in such a close community that everyone just feels a really strong responsibility to each other. So we have 30 guys on our volunteer fire department. And when there's a call out, almost all of them respond, at least half of them. And I mean, a couple of weeks ago, a local had their house burned down and they were there. They were supportive. You have all the farmers in the area bringing their water trucks, their discers. If you've got a breakdown crop or anything like that to create, you know, fire breaks. Like it's a, it's a big group of just support. And it's not just, you know, one person. I, I might be the coordinator, but I just literally make sure that everyone who comes in comes out. I mean, that's kind of my biggest goal too. And we often get really tunnel vision on like fires. But I mean, if there was a child abduction, and I mean, it's never happened, but God forbid that would ever happen. Again, we would step in and we would create those roadblocks and create those perimeters so like nobody gets in or out so we can, you know, try to figure out what happened to this child essentially. But, you know, it's just, it's like a big broad spectrum of what could potentially happen. So I like to joke that um, I make a living of managing chaos, which is essentially what it is, right? And you're trying to like think 10 steps ahead and you're trying to think of the impossible things that will never happen and you're going to make a plan for it, right? So whether it's going to happen or not, you don't know, but you still like, you always want to keep that open mind to like, am I tunnel visioning on something like that? Or could I be doing better by opening up the blinders and seeing this from a different perspective? Yeah, it's all that hypothetical chaos, right? But like you said, you know, you hope you don't have a child abduction, but you need to have a plan for it if it happens so that all those the people who are thinking, well, I don't know, to know what to do in that situation they have, you know, whether it's a guidebook or a whatever, right? Like the steps to follow to be like, here's what you do in this situation or a fire or a, well, yeah, whatever the emergency might be that everybody is kind of, it can be helpful, right? Because that's what everyone, all those people want to be helpful. That's why they're doing it. But yeah, if you don't know what to do, then yeah, you're the, yeah, you're the chaos manager. Yeah. I know. And it's just like, it's, it's a living document, essentially, like my plans, because you're going to try it. And you're going to realize like, oh, this does not work, but you don't know till you try it. And that's just kind of the, like the shitty part about that is, you know, it's just trial and error. And until you trial it, you don't know what the error is. So you just you make your best guess and just kind of go with it. I know our county a few years ago invested. I mean, it was honestly a lot of money and effort into putting in a, a training facility that's used both by the city and the rural departments. And I know there have been complaints about 
the money spent and, you know, why do they need this much training? You know, nothing ever happens out here. But one of my husband's friend's 17-year-old son was involved in a tractor rollover with a loaded chopper box down a cliff into a stand of trees last year and miraculously walked out with a broken, I mean, did not walk out, ended up in the hospital for most of a week, but was not killed. They were largely... Basically walked out. Yeah. I mean, as as small an injury as you could possibly hope for in that situation. And that sure makes the time and money spent on training seem a lot more worthwhile because... Well, and that's the thing, too. I mean, we had a combine fire in 2014. Um, and this is like we... My brother and I have actually just kind of like both moved home at this point. Uh, to start kind of like farming and I my, my brother like he's a volunteer firefighter and so is my husband and at the time like they were not on the department but after that combine fire my brother was just like I'm gonna join the fire department like it was just such a sense of just community and how like it is your responsibility and I know like even our fire department too like we have a fire board that helps to kind of manage the funds and it's not just our RM but there's actually three RMs that come into like fund our fire department but there's never any question because when there's a combine fire, there's a house fire, those people, they want their assets saved or managed to the absolute, you know, max amount of dollar. So, I mean, we had a house fire too a couple of years ago and it flared up in the middle of the night. I remember a fire chief kind of being disappointed too. They got a fire or a heat gun after that. So they're able to check for those hot spots. And I mean, it's, Unfortunately, they didn't have it at that time, but they do now. And I just, I never question stuff like that. And people will question it until it's their house on fire or their combine on fire. Then there is no question. Mm -hmm. That's right. So did you grow up in the area where you are? And what's kind of your background in ag? So I did. I actually grew up here on the farm. And of course, being like angsty teenage, she's like, oh, I don't want to be here. I want to be in the city and blah, blah, blah. So, like, pretty much the, the day after I graduated, like, I moved away from home, and I moved to Calgary, and I went to university there, I went to school for paramedicine, so I became a primary care paramedic, um, pretty much had a life there for about, gosh, I guess it would have been about eight years or so, um, and then I remember that my mom calling, and she's like, the farm next to us is for sale, you should buy it, I was like, uh no <laughs> and my husband's like let's do it <laughs> what i was like oh my god did you realize like this is like a different level of isolation like there's no circle k that you could just go to the middle of the night because you want to slurp here or something like this is different like my husband actually grew up in high river which is just south of calgary and he was just like nope let's do it so we just literally uprooted our life and moved home to the farm and just never looked back i mean my husband loved it I mean, if I ever, if I said to him, like, we got to move to town, he wouldn't do it. He'd probably leave me and just be like, I'm staying here. Like he was, he was born for it. Yeah. Forget it. I'll choose the farm this time. Well, and it's funny because even when the pandemic happened and like, stay away from people, he was like, I've been trading for this my whole life. <laughs> I think there were a fair number of us uh, farm parents and farmers in general who were like, hmm, nothing different you know yeah nothing changed for us really other than like parking lot pickup at walmart yeah that didn't even happen for us either stay home and stay away <laughs> from people twist my arm <laughs> yeah, exactly. you know 
So, farm safety is something that, I hate to say, hopefully most parents spend time thinking about. Um, Reading the description of the farm accident that you had as a child has unlocked several new fears, so thank you for that. Um, (laughs) Yeah, so can you tell us about that accident and about what that recovery was like, especially as, without telling too much of your story for you, um, having recently had a four-year-old, I cannot even imagine what that process would be like. And now I'm going to hope that I read your age right, because I'm going to feel like a real jerk if I got it wrong. I was four. Yeah, I was four when it happened. So it was like 30 years ago, but whatever, who's counting? So... Um, when I was four years old, so in 1994, I was actually in a really bad farm accident. And uh, what had happened is the rototiller was sitting outside and my brother and I were playing outside. You know, nothing unusual. This is just what we normally did. Uh, the rototiller was running and my brother and I, being the wonderfully listening kids that we were, decided to play on this device. So after a little bit of, you know, pissing around, um, what happened is uh, it got kicked into gear. And it's actually it's a center gear shift. So it's really, really easy to kind of put into gear. So anyways, he kicked it into gear. I, he fell forward. I fell back and I actually was thrown into the PTO, which was then the rotor, um, like the rototiller rotor on the back. And so it went through that. And I remember, I actually do kind of remember this. And I remember my mom kind of scooping me up and she took me to the house. My dad, I love him, but sometimes he just panics a little bit. Uh, I remember him saying like, do we take her to the hospital? I was like, yes. So we had this old like boat of a car. And I remember um, mom sitting in the back with me and we're driving to her closest hospital, which was 30 minutes away. And I do remember her saying to me like, Oh, like watch for birds, watch for birds. And like try to keep me awake. And I, my mom said after the fact, she's like, there wasn't a damn bird in the sky that day. <laughs> so anyways, I uh, get to the hospital and there was a lot of discussion about whether or not to like send me to Saskatoon which, in retrospect, having the medical background that I have now, like, I would have slapped that doctor up the side of the head and be like, why are you questioning this? Like, children are so much different than adults. Like, I was likely in, you know, um, compensated shock, which means I could have crashed at any moment. So it was actually uh, one of the medics and a couple of the nurses that came in doctor like, yeah, no, she needs to go. So then I was taken from ambulance from Crawford to the University Hospital in Saskatoon. And mom and dad were following me up in their vehicle. And uh, mom said, like, you know, the ambulance stopped a couple times. And, of course, like, didn't really know what was going on. So got to the hospital. And my dad's family lives out there. And his brother was there. And mom and dad saw him. So I was actually met at the door, uh, the trauma team. Uh, I think there were seven surgeons on call that day. So and it was quite a lengthy surg- or surgery. But before... Uh, my, I, the surgery could be done on me. My mom actually had to sign a form, kind of just like releasing liability and just saying like, you know, after a certain point, like if we choose to stop because, you know, there's no viable option, like you're going to like, you know, you have to kind of accept that. So mom was like forced to sign this document that if, you know, we decide that there's nothing we can do, your kid's pretty much going to die, which would be like unbearable as a parent, like, you know, thinking about that now. And so um, did the surgery like it was a very, very lengthy surgery and actually a few of the surgeons did quit 
at that point, but there was a couple that, you know, hung on and did their thing. And I did survive the surgery and I was put into ICU, but then I was told, you know, like there was so much damage and I would likely never walk again and whatever else. So being the stubborn four-year-old that I was, um, decided that that wasn't going to happen. And I did actually, you know, end up walking. Although I do remember the recovery for that was extremely painful. Uh, my Achilles tendon was severed. So they had to fix that. So they actually cut a piece out and they shortened it. And I have, you can probably see here, like I got scars on my face, um, on my lips here. So I actually had part of my, uh, my, the bottom of my jaw was kind of pulled off. And I had um, a blade that went into my belly and it lacerated my liver and it um, lacerated some intestines. So I had, you know, of course that repair. Um, but the biggest injury was my leg. So what happened is it actually, it was an avulsion would be the medical term for it. It wasn't a full amputation, but it was partially amputated. Um, you could see, you know, the flesh, it was kind of like jagged, essentially kind of hanging there. So, um, that was repaired skin graphing, you know, uh, no breaks, surprisingly, but of course, you know, a lot of muscle and tendon damage, um, repaired my belly, of course, repaired my face. And I feel like the plastic surgeon did a pretty good job on my face. Um, I mean, there's one scar, but it's kind of right on my lap line. So it's not really noticeable until I point it out to people or some people will just say like, Oh, did you play hockey? Did you get like a cross check to the face? Cause that's also kind of what that scar looks like. Right. Which no, that's not what happened. Um, so in the hospital for quite a long time and, you know, starting the physiotherapy, going to Saskatoon often, which is about a three hour drive for us here. Lots of physio, lots of casts. And, you know, 10 years later, you know, still having a lot of problems. So as I was getting older, because my Achilles was sh shortened, it never did stretch out. And I actually had a permanent like shrinkage of a muscle and I was walking on a tiptoe and I walked on a tiptoe for so long. It actually started to change the shape of my spine. And I was having a lot of problems, a lot of balance problems, a lot of pain, um, pain. I often really didn't talk about just because it's just not something I did and I'm not really sure why, but I remember as a kid, you know, just kind of being in a lot of pain, being embarrassed because I couldn't wear a skate because my foot physically did not fit into a skate, right? Because of the shape of it, uh, or there'd be a lot of pain, um, if I was doing something like that. And I, I learned to do things different. Like even running, it was, although it looked funny, like I could still kind of do some version of it. Uh, so what happened is I went to physiotherapy once a week for, Gosh, I think it was a year. Mom and I would drive to Unity, which is an hour away, and she'd take me to my physio appointment. And we did actually strengthen or lengthen the Achilles a little bit, but still when I stood on a plumb nine, there was a big deviation in my spine. So meeting with a bunch of surgeons, it was decided that I needed surgery. Like, we have to fix this because, you know, long-term, the effects are going to be not good. And what they did, too, is they tried to give me a muscle mass in my leg. So the leg that was, a, like, evolved what happened was um the tissue that was torn off the muscle the leg was unable to build muscle so it was just a, like a, a bone essentially like I didn't have any muscle mass there so they decided that they want to try to give it a muscle so one of the ways they wanted to do that was actually and you're gonna laugh was a breast implant <laughs> so they thought about putting a breast implant underneath kind of like kind of bulk it out just to give it the ability to um build muscle but then they decided what they're going to do is they were going to take a transplant tissue from my back my shoulder um and they were going to transplant that to my leg 
And at the time it worked. It was an experimental surgery. I think that one was a, I want to say that was a 12 hour surgery. I think this, which that one was. Um, so they, you know, at 15 years old, I was in the hospital again, had that surgery. I was in the hospital for, I think it was about a month, which sucked as a 15 year old kid. And I remember having to go to school in the hospital and I just, I hated it. And um, I was such a keen student that I was actually pretty ahead of my stuff anyways. But I remember doing a book report in the hospital and I was like high off morphine and I read it afterwards. And I'm like, I have to redo this. Like, I can't give this to the teacher. This is, this is horrible. So, um, in a wheelchair for a while after that, lots of physio, uh, again, and I was able to walk flat footed, although it was like slightly pigeon toed. And like, even to this day, there, there's a, still a little bit of a pigeon toe to that one side. If you ever walk, just my feet prints and like the snow was actually quite funny. Cause you know, it looks kind of goofy. Um, still trying to get a little bit of mobility in that but um as an adult now like still obviously suffering from those injuries like i have really bad arthritis in my knee at you know 30 years old i still have really bad back pain like all the time and i know a lot of people say like they have back pain and like i sympathize to that but like this is just chronic and it's never going to go away um my hips uh often you know are quite sore too just because of the way that i walk and I mean, I've tried yoga and all that stuff too, but you know, there's still quite a bit of problems, uh, pain wise and my leg where the mass was transplanted to my body's rejecting the transplant, which it can happen when your body can reject its own tissue. So it's actually kind of like getting larger and eventually it probably will die the tissue. Um, it might lose circulation to it cause it is quite cold to the touch and I don't have a lot of feeling in that area. So if I get stung by a bee, I have to be careful because I, I can't feel that, but I notice that, Oh, like I have a wound or there's something and I have to be really concerned about, you know, keeping it clean and not letting it get infected, but I don't notice that. Um, and I guess like the hardest part too, as an adult is when I was a young bride and, you know, my husband and I were talking about having kids, we decided to pull the goalie and I just couldn't get pregnant. And so I got pregnant once when I was younger by fluke and like I miscarried it. It was actually a set of twins and I never really thought much about it at that time just because I was really young and it was like really scary for me. So like I was sad, but it wasn't like devastating at that point. But as I got older and we're like actively trying to have kids, like it just wasn't happening and I was like losing babies all the time. And so like meeting with like fertility specialists and stuff, there was actually quite a bit of damage to my, um, my uterus. And we didn't really know about that. And my mom said, too, that she had asked the question when I was younger, like, would she have trouble having kids? And the doctor said no. But I did, actually, because there was quite a bit of scar tissue on my uterus, which made it really difficult because I really wasn't a good candidate for C-section just because of that existing scar. So I uh, decided to kind of take a break from the fertility stuff. My husband and I took a trip to the East Coast, uh, Newfoundland, um, Nova Scotia, things like that which I would highly recommend. It was a great trip and went to Niagara Falls. Cause I was like, we have to do this. Cause it's like on our way. And then lo and behold, I got pregnant at Niagara Falls. <laughs> so and it was actually really exciting for us, but I remember um, being late and, you know, not having my period. And I'm like, Oh my God, it's cancer. It's cysts. Like what the heck could be going on? 
So my husband's like, just take a pregnancy test. So I did. And uh, we went upstairs and I think we watched Harry Potter because I remember crying when the CGI spider died. And my husband's like, what's wrong with you? He's like, that's crazy. And so I went downstairs and I saw, I was like, oh my God, this thing's positive. And so of course, you know, the rest is history. Um, and I did actually have like quite a few miscarriages between kids, but I was still successfully able to carry my three kids. What was it like in terms of your injuries when you were pregnant? I mean, you say that you have chronic pain now. I'm guessing that carrying three babies and, you know, all of the for for someone who hasn't had injuries or or chronic pain, that pregnancy is hard on your body anyway. Did you have kind of extra? I'm I'm assuming that it was extra difficult for you, especially, but you know, pregnancies that close together too. Well, and like having that extra weight, of course, makes a big difference on your joints. But I had really poor circulation. My leg, my bad leg, it actually blew up the size of a balloon. I was like, oh my God. So I remember talking to my doctor about it. And he says, yeah, like you're just not getting good circulation down there. So of course there's always the risk of clots and everything like that. And but you know, with compression stockings and like trying to keep my feet up as much as possible, it like it was okay, but it was it was hard. Mm-hmm. And I don't like being told like I can't do something. So it was like even more frustrating. It was like, you have to like rest. Right. And were you working as an EMS at that point or had you, were you doing something else for work when you'd come back? I retired at that point. Like I quit working because right. uh, I was actually pregnant and then I had lost a, a child or a baby. And then I remember thinking like, I don't think I can do this career and like go through this fertility journey. Cause it's just, it was too much. And it was really physically hard on my body. Um, so it left EMS and then we, um, like again, we're trying. And then once I was kind of out of that to that really high stress career, it did make it maybe a little bit easier, but there was no way that I could have done it. And then like our shifts at that time were not super fantastic. And I just remember thinking like, there's no way I could raise kids on this. Cause like, who's going to watch my kids, my dog, like just don't know how that's going to work. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's right. So do you think that your injury and all of your exposure to hospitals and doctors and all that kind of stuff, was that part of what you brought you into working in EMS? Like, do you do you see that as one of your influences, like just having that early exposure to the medical system? And I think, yeah, like definitely, probably. And I've always had that interest. And I mean, I learned medicine really young and going to the doctors and the appointments like I just I I understood things and I would see like an x-ray and I would like under I would know which bone is which and I would understand the tendons and I just I really had a really early start with that but it's pretty cool when I moved back home and started working EMS I actually started working with a lady who I really admire and she was the one who um who actually took me to the hospital in my accident So, yeah, that was pretty cool, too. And I remember learning, too, like, when the vehicle, like, when the ambulance stopped, they were actually defibrillating me. So, like, she actually um, used a defibrillator on me. So I was like, oh, my gosh, that's so cool. (laughs) Such a morbid, dark sense of humor. Yeah, when your parents saw the ambulance stopping, it was because they were bringing you back. Yeah, they were shocking me, yeah. Wow, That's, that's wild. What was it like as a kid when you were in school and growing up with with differences? Like, was that... I mean, kids are assholes. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. Like, let's, let's just call a spade a spade. Yeah. And I mean, I mean that in a nice way, too, because, like, my kids are assholes, too. But, like, I really try not to raise assholes. And that, that is the benefit of, like, the goats and the chickens, that it really does kind of bring down that 
that jerk level a little bit. Um, but most, like for the most part, it was pretty good. I mean, there was always the teasing and the bullying and stuff. Um, but I think like the hardest part was just trying to be like a normal kid. And I just, I wasn't normal. And I, I just, there was nothing, nothing was ever going to make me normal. And at, there wasn't going to be a certain point where like, Oh, you hit 15, you're going to be normal. Like that, that just wasn't the reality for me. I think that was really hard to cope with. Like I was always going to be different and I was going to look different. And of course with that, I actually struggled hugely with my weights because I learned to self-medicate with sugar, which obviously not the healthiest, but it was just something that I did. And so I often struggled. Like I was like, I would cope with sugar or I would just like kind of like really kind of do a crash diet, which is super unhealthy as a teenager. Um, so I really struggled heavily with that. And that had a lot to do with my mental health too. Cause I mean, I always tell people too, that I teach like, you know, my weight isn't going to be fixed until the demons upstairs are gone. So like there's a direct correlation between how, those actually affect each other it was tough I did get through it small communities um it was a little bit different like I think people just knew me as me and it just wasn't really like oh like she's the weird girl with the scars or anything like that like it was just it was Bailey and you know what she does things differently I know you can't speak for other people necessarily but how did your parents cope with I mean what I'm sure was some guilt and you know like then the fear and the you know the stress on the you know all the tra travel and medical appointments and all the things that as a family you guys would have had to to deal with in those years um I think my brother actually probably struggled the most with it and like he did it silently and like even to this day he would never admit like it would it bothered him um, but of course there's that whole survivor's guilt and whether someone can recognize that or not, like you, there was just classic symptoms of it too. Um, of course my mom like struggled, but she never struggled outwardly that I ever saw. Um, and it was hard for her because she was living in the city. Like she, they were renting, um, it was like a hotel, but they're apartments and they give you um, like discounts for long-term rentals. So mom was staying there. She come to the hospital every single day. Like, the hospital knew mom and they loved mom and like they just they uh the security guys would always escort her to the cab every single night and like they just they just knew mom right and like she did well but it was very tough when I had my surgery when I was 15 she was crocheting a lot so like she's like I didn't know how to cope so I just like literally crocheted an entire blank in that time <laughs> so like I can imagine her hands would have been pretty sore, but it would have been tough. And I just, as a parent now, I don't think I recognized how tough that would have been, but I definitely applaud her strength in that because I, I don't know if I could do the same thing. Maybe I could given the circumstances, but you think about it, it's just absolutely horrifying, you know, to think of those things for your kid. Yes. So she stayed in the city with you and your dad's was back at the home with back at home on the farm with your brother. Yeah. And so my brother stayed too with my, um, grandparents. So my grandma lived on the farm with us too. So she would help. And then my mom's mom, like would also take my brother for a bit too. Sure. Yeah. So it affects the whole family, right? Yeah. And I mean, the farm kind of has to keep going. So dad was home farming and dad also had a business too. Um, it was a chemical fertilizer business. So like he sold products to like local farmers and stuff like, crop needs to get in that doesn't stop and that's just the shitty part about you know injury or death it's just life doesn't stop like you just you got to find a way to keep going 
Yeah, that's the, the farm side, right? As uh, someone who dealt with infertility myself and some other health issues, the access to quality medical care and people not understanding how much time it takes because of things like driving three hours to the hospital, driving an hour to a doctor's appointment every week that like, you know, people in cities talk about lack of access and they, they only mean it's hard to get an appointment. They don't mean it's hard to get an appointment. Realistically, some of these smaller town hospitals aren't pulling the best and the brightest from the biggest schmanciest medical schools in the world. You know, I mean, they're, you're probably still getting really good medical care. You might still see really good doctors, but especially if you need a specialist, you're not going to find them at your rural hospital. And then you're going to drive three hours to go see this not specialist if you manage to get an appointment. And I think that's something that people really miss, that it's not as simple as, you know, I'm going to run to the doctor and I'll be back in 10 minutes. Like, it's a whole a whole thing. Like, the, that is just the epitome of living rural. Like, it's unbelievable how there's nothing out here for us. Like, people forget that there is a population out here and we're often, like, really forgotten about. Um, and it is tough, you know, especially in the medical system. I do really appreciate my doctor because um, with my children, I actually had really three complicated deliveries. Um, my daughter, my oldest daughter, she actually uh, was stuck in these forceps and they broke her little shoulder when she came out. Um, my second child, she came out like a cannon, according to my husband. Like, I just, I remember them breaking my water and I was like, uh, I got to push. And they're like, no, no, you're only like two centimeters. And I'm like, I'm pushing. And so anyways, they turned or they lifted the blanket and there's a head. And of course my husband said the panic ensued and there's like gel flying everywhere. There was paper, there was doctors and like, they didn't have the bed up. And I just think like someone better catch this kid cause she's like coming out. So she, um, because she came out so fast, her face was so bruised and she had like her bottom down sugar um which was corrected and she's okay now and my son he was my inspiration to stop having kids <laughs> and i i mean that like wholeheartedly i love him but he was freaking 10 pounds when he came out and he was in the c-section and i just thought like someone made a bad decision here like this this is horrible and he was sent yeah well he was sunny side up and he also had shoulder dystocia and like being from the farm, you're going to love this reference. I was calved um, because they had to stick an arm in and like grab the shoulder. And I was like, I'm a freaking cow right now. And I just, I remember the trauma from that. But like my husband is really big, like he's six, nine. So, I mean, it made sense that I was going to have like big kids. And, like all my kids were big. My middle child, Hazel, she was actually the smallest at seven pounds, two ounces, but she was three weeks early. So, um, yeah, thank God she didn't go to term. But my son, he was uh, two weeks early, and he was he was ten pounds when he came out. So I said to my husband, "If we have more kids, I need a different sire because I just I can't do it with you anymore." <laughs> yeah, the the calving ease is not it's not what we want it to be here, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so and like um, I really do appreciate my doctor when I had my kids because uh, with my oldest, I remember him saying like I actually I don't feel comfortable doing this and I don't want to make a mistake and I'm going to send you to someone who can do it and being like 
36 weeks pregnant, I was a hormone casserole. And I remember crying to my mom and I was like, I just, I don't want to do this. I want to have my baby here at Provost. And so we went into the specialist. Mom came with me because my husband was working and I hated the specialist. Like at first, like we just, we bunted heads and I'm just, I'm very stubborn he said to me, he's like, we're not getting anywhere here. You're going to go for lunch and then you're going to come back and we're going to try this conversation again. We're going to start over. Yeah. And of course, a lot of that was fear. Like I was just like really upset. I, did, I didn't want to be there. I didn't want to have my kids there. And so I went for lunch, whatever, and I calmed down a little bit. I remember talking to him. And, um, He was like, when you have your kids, make sure you don't act like that to the nurses. I'm like, okay. Like, I'm not a bad person here. And, like, I have a lot of fear and, you know, like, there's a lot of unknowns. So I'm allowed to be reactive right now. Like, and especially since, like, I'm a ball of hormones. This is my, like, first baby that I'm going to deliver. Um, so, but that was two and a half hours that I had to drive to my specialist. And then because I had complications, I'm going in for an ultrasound, and then I have to go in the next week to get those ultrasound readings and to get like my other tests done, my sugars and stuff. And so like I'm doing that for like the longest time. And like that's a lot of time. That's a lot of like fuel. It's a lot of energy. Uh, and then I had my babies in Lloydminster Hospital and I had a fantastic experience there. Like I absolutely loved having my kids there, but it was a long ways away. And I remember when we had the first, they kept me in for five days and I do appreciate that. But my daughter had a broken shoulder and she was a little bit jaundiced because of it. But I remember one of the nurses saying, like, you live too far away. Like, you can't go home. Like, if there's complications, like, there's just, you can't just fly up to us. And with Hazel, my second, like, she had, um, like, the low sugars. We were there for uh, seven days. And then my son, he was in the NICU for um, 12 hours after he was born just because it was such a complicated delivery. He had fluid in his lungs. Um, so we were there for another seven days too. So I was in the hospital for each of my deliveries for almost a week. And people look at me like I'm crazy. And it's like, I don't live two minutes from the hospital. If something goes wrong, I need to be there so they can handle it. Because a lot of these things are very time sensitive. Mm. That is really admirable, though, of the first doctor to admit that they didn't feel prepared. Like that takes, you know, like sometimes people who are experts don't don't want to say that they don't don't feel comfortable doing something so that that's huge that someone would would admit that and he didn't let his ego get in the way and I like I totally appreciate that at the time I was angry at him uh just because it was a fear-based thing right but then after now I'm like yeah no I definitely needed to be where I was when I had my kids so I'm going to transition into talking about first aid because that's something that you're doing now like you're doing first aid training and it seems like something that i mean as parents obviously we should know but also as farmers i mean we know that farms are dangerous places and we're working around animals and we've got other people around and stuff so what are some of the things that we should know and what's what's important when it comes to first aid training should we be taking the courses what's what's the story i mean i always recommend it like I truly believe that everybody should have some kind of knowledge of first aid, even if you live in the city, just because shit happens. Um, but well, I always joke with my students that like at the end of the day, I actually only care if you remember like 10% of my course and they just kind of look at me fine. I'm like, no, I'm serious. Like there's really 10% I want you to remember. And like of that 10%, it's one, I want you to know to keep yourself safe because I think that oftentimes when there's, um, 
something happening, we often want to run in and like immediately save that person, but not concerned that we will likely be in that same situation. And I mean, that's very relevant too on the farm. Think of like um, someone drowning in a grain bin, right? Being grain entrapment. So mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, silo gas. Yeah, yeah, totally. Mm-hmm. It always makes me think of uh, manure pits, gases. You know, we've had whole families killed that way. And it, yeah, and ugh. so, I mean, a couple years ago, too, well, I guess it was more than a couple years ago, but I remember there was a couple kids that were in a grain cart, and they had they suffocated from grain entrapment, and then the grandfather tried to save them, and he died, too. So, like, we have to think of our safety. And, like, I know, like, we want to save these people, but if you are down, you are no good to them. And if you are X amount of hours from the hospital or EMS is X amount of hours away from you, like you have to be there to help them. So you have to keep yourself safe. So that's one of the biggest things I tell my students. The other thing I tell my student is like, is this person like recognized immediately? Is this person breathing or are they not breathing? So based on that, after that, you're going to call 911. Those are kind of your three biggest things. And there's a huge intimidation factor to calling 911 because people think, well, is this serious enough? Am I going to get in trouble because this is an inappropriate reason? And I always love to read the statistics of when they come out from year to year of like the most inappropriate 911 calls. And I remind people, like, you're good. People call for worse reasons. Although it's not right, they didn't get into trouble. I mean, there's a huge education process, but never, ever be afraid to call 911. Even if you don't necessarily need the resources, they're going to direct you on what you need to do. And if you guys, I always tell my students, if you forget everything in first aid, if you call 911, they're going to talk you through everything step by step anyways. So never, ever hesitate if you're not sure. So I love to teach, if in doubt, call EMS out, like especially in these rural areas. So it's kind of the three kind of takeaways. Yeah, because the time factor too, right? You know, if it's, even if you don't need them and it could takes 10 minutes, but if you decide five minutes later that you do need them, that adds that much more time, right? Yeah, you can always cancel them. Yeah, it's actually, exactly. It's it's better to call and have them be on yeah. their way than, than to regret not having made that call when you weren't sure. Well, and where we are, even though we live 20 minutes, 30 minutes from the hospital, it's about a 45 minute ambulance call. And it could be more now just because our rural EMS is in a in a rough state um, of staffing, um, it's, you could be waiting a long time. So I often have a lot of neighbors that will call me and like, oh my God, like, what do we do? It's like, if you can drive them, you got a few people, they start driving to the hospital and then you'll meet the ambulance on the road. Sometimes that can alleviate that, um, that waiting time and the risk of getting lost in the rural areas as well, which is a mm-hmm. huge problem too. Arlene, I feel like this might be a place to add your pitch for your uh, map that you guys did for your truck because I think that was an excellent, excellent idea. Oh, yeah. Um, Yeah, I know I saw a while ago someone had shared a post about um, naming and identifying all the fields Mm -hmm. where people are because I know in some places they will give you 911 numbers for rural places, but where we are, they won't give us a 911 number or a street number for a place that doesn't have a building. So if there are, if you have fields, I know everyone's got like the, you know, it's named after whoever owned it before or the, the field with the hill or whatever, right? But we, I created a list. I went around with my husband and we, we looked at what was the closest residence to each field entrance. We put the name, the closest 911 number, where it was, and then let, made sheets of all of our properties and then laminated it and put it in every tractor and put it in the barn and put it in my house and my in-laws. And so that 
whatever piece of equipment you're in, you have a list of where you are and if you needed to call 911 to at least have the closest property to where a where an ambulance could go to or a fire truck or whatever because it's so yeah i mean i get confused sometimes when my husband says can you bring me you know lunch to whatever field or i'm in the back of such and such a, a property like how do you direct an ambulance there if your tractor's on fire or whatever right like so to create some kind of a, a reference sheet it felt felt like a, a good call for us and i'm sure that for lots of farms if you're if you got various properties it would be a, a good good thing to have on hand right and that's awesome because it's being like proactive we are really retroactive making like lawmaking society like usually shit has to happen before we change our ways which sucks because why can't we like predict these things and maybe change on that but maybe that's just the emergency management coming out um we have land locations um where we are so i don't know if that's what you have in ontario but in saskatchewan we have land locations and although we do have like the blue 911 civic address number like on my farm it's something that really our ems systems can't quite use yet because we don't have the technology or the know-how uh to utilize so it was actually kind of a piss off for the rms because they're like we were told that we had to do this and now you guys can't use it i was like eventually they'll get there we're just not there quite yet but like my address on my farm is northwest 2433 26 w3 so just rolls off the tongue yeah like i mean you just know it um each field has its own number like its own land location and that's how we would identify it so if like dad's like it's at field 19 i'm like okay i know which one that is based on like that land location number right but it's a lot to remember so having the map books is a good idea or even just having like um a way to identify like how we refer to these fields because it's like okay so um who used to own this like zingers field is whatever number or this field is whatever number yeah so i mean that's fantastic yeah, and each region is going to have different ways of, yeah, however you identify those places and how someone could get to you. But, but think about if you're one of your kid, you know, one of your teenage kids is working in that field or an employee who maybe doesn't doesn't exactly know how to how to direct someone there. Like what what would they need to tell someone if they called 911 how to get there? Bailey, what do you recommend for communicating on the farm as well? I know for a lot of us cell service is iffy at best and even with things like being able to hear your cell ringing if somebody needs to get a hold of you um or as far as things like our friend whose son was in the accident they didn't realize there was a problem until everybody else got to the farm and he wasn't there um so i'm just wondering you know what best practice or what recommendations you have for just keeping track of people or even like you know, when I let my kids go play in the yard, making sure that other people who might be likely to be coming in know that my kids are outside. Just, you know, how we can communicate effectively, and especially with the sandwich generation and dealing with older folks and younger folks at the same time. You know. Oh, yes, the the budding head generations. I love to see the old and the new just constantly going at it. They both have good ideas, but like there is also a good ground in the middle. Um, in our area, you can still call 911 with no service. And I think that's a really common unknown piece of knowledge where people are like, I don't have service. I can't call 911. You can. 
it gets transmitted into an SOS signal. So if you ever, I can't speak for your areas, but for us, if we go into a no service area, my service bars turns into what's SOS. So I can still call 911. I can't talk to anybody, but again, it gets transmitted into a ping. Um, and typically we can somewhat find the location or dispatch can based on that uh, 911 call, which is good. But for us on the farm, often it is like CB radios, which if anyone ever tuned in at harvest time on our CBs, they would like probably call like the cops on us because they're like, these people are nuts. <laughs> yeah. So, and I've actually heard some neighbors say too, like, oh, we've heard you guys on the radio. It's like, oh, I'm so embarrassed. <laughs> Sorry about that. Yeah. I, I can't be responsible for what I said in anger to my brother. <laughs> but yeah, like it's imperfect it's one of the flaws of living out here is you have some good stuff and not but with my kids just kind of on that line um like teaching them where to be is helpful i know a neighbors of ours sure kids whenever someone pulled into the yard those like three boys would run to the deck and they just like stand there it was like it was like it was it was beautiful it was perfect uh for us we fenced in our yard and people thought we were absolutely insane to put up 500 feet of fencing, but I have zero regrets because not only do we live close to a road, but we were in and out with the tractors. We used to have the bins in our yard, but we have since moved them. Um, so there was constantly like me coming in with the grain cart or like the trucks coming in or whatever, or people driving through our yard because they were going to go like the mechanics or something going to see the, the combine. So it there was a lot of traffic. There was a lot of potential hazard. And my kids do know too, that like you can't, leave that fenced area unless you're with like mom or dad and we did put locks on the gates too because i have zero faith in my children so so there like there's that aspect of it but if i am doing chores um or my kids are in the house i actually have walkie talkies so or i'll be cutting grass and like i have the walkie talkie so my oldest should like walkie talkie me like this is what's going on or we're still learning what an emergency is with the kids and like, we'll get there. But I know my oldest, she, I was cutting grass and she radioed me and she's like, mom, bad news. And I'm like, what's wrong? She's like, Hazel fell off the couch again. And I was like, was she sitting in the toy box? And she said, yeah. And I was like, well, that's why she fell off, but she's fine. <laughs> so again, we're still learning like what that idea of an emergency is, but it, her recognizing that like, this is how I connect to you is important. So if you're not running out to me at the lawnmower because that's not okay, mm -hmm. you call me on the radio or you call me on this walkie talkie. It's kind of like 911, right? Better to call and be told that everything's okay. <laughs> call me and let me know and I'll decide if it's an emergency or not. You put the toy box in the couch and fall off. Yeah. yeah. Did your brother decide that he wanted to watch something else and he's mad about it? Not an emergency, but thanks for letting me know. Yeah, that happens lots too. Yeah. And to also like not get mad that they get in touch, right? Just to be like, cool thanks for letting me know right so that they don't that you... and that's hard too to not be reactive as a parent oh yeah for sure I'm not saying that that's easy but no and like I, I can be a yelly parent and I hate that I get that point but I mean and I'm not saying anything bad about like my parents and my parents generation but that's what happened with them is they were yelled at and so then they yelled at us and now we're yelling at our kids because that's what we know and I'm really trying not to so um like just retraining your brain is very difficult but I remember and if dad's ever listening to this he's gonna like be like mad but I remember when my brother and I were little stuff would go wrong or something would break and we were so terrified to tell my dad that something went wrong or something broke that my brother and I would do the 
dumbest things to try to fix it or to try to whatever, get it working. Like not even having a zero concern for our like self-preservation or, you know, safety or anything like that. And like, thank God everything did turn out okay. But we were more fearful of like getting yelled at or upsetting someone than we were of our own safety. And like, as a parent, like how fucked up is that? You know, like, I don't want my kids to be scared to be like, mom, this is what happened. It's like, okay, like I have to retrain my brain. Like I am absolutely terrified and I'm angry because they could have been hurt. But like, I have to put all that aside because at the end of the day, I need my kids to trust me to be like, okay, let's, let's fix this. Let's deal with this. Right. Yeah. And that accidents happen, but they only get worse if we don't tell people who are safe and who can help us. Right. I am not a perfect parent. Like I yell. And like when I do yell, I do explain to my oldest Lila, I'm like, I am, I'm not yelling because I'm angry. I'm yelling because I'm scared and I'm sorry. But like, it just, it shocked me and it scared me. And all I could think about was like, you guys could have got hurt. And that's why I yelled. Mm -hmm. So at least trying to like communicate to her why I did it, not making it okay. But like, this is why I did it. That totally makes sense. Um, What are some of safety things that you have around all the time? You know, like whether it's a first aid kit or other things that, you know, like are essentials when it comes to safety, like physical things. So a first aid kit is like that. I'm the wrong person to ask about that. I get asked about that all the time. What's in your first aid kit? Well, I have a full like paramedicine kit. Yeah, you can do anything. So. She actually has an ambulance parked in the yard. Yeah, that's right. So you can stitch your you own know. kids up. I used to joke like, <laughs> you know, like I am nine one one. You know, so I have all that stuff. It is funny because I do actually have like actual wound kits, and we have dermabond, so like I can you know make the decision to like to glue the wound or something like that, which I don't recommend people doing because gluing your wounds with crazy glue like first of all crazy glue is corrosive it's going to eat your tissue and it's not going to heal properly and it's going to burn your eyes with the gases like you know i have that training i have that know-how so that's a huge advantage when my brother so what you're saying is to use duct tape that's what i'm hearing here right okay cool (laughs) (laughs) my husband loves the whole electrical tape paper towel band-aid although electrical tape is so expensive i'm like there are cheaper versions of tape um when my brother split his hand i remember he came to me he's like do i need stitches and i'm like yeah probably but let's see if we can actually close this up on us so i like i cleaned it and i um close up steri strips changed the bandage daily and i mean it healed up pretty easy uh wounds are probably my specialty like i deal with them lots when my nephew split his forehead on the corner of the wall like i went and dressed it they probably would have glued it at the hospital but of course you know i dressed it and it healed up beautifully and probably wouldn't have looked any different with glue i have an advantage but like the basics gloves um a good wound cleaner definitely lots of gauze things like that i mean there's always the idea of a tourniquet if there's like an amputation things like that and um something as simple as a blanket we, we really overthink first aid and although i do love gray's anatomy it's a guilty pleasure it's like really made my job hard because it's not not how real life actually works so i always tell my students like don't underestimate how important or like or how something as simple as a blanket really is beneficial they just put a blanket on them keep them calm keep them warm keep them comfortable and you might not be able to do much but you can at least be there with them and like don't don't underestimate how powerful that is on its own i think one of the 
to me, the funniest parts of the infertility thing and then the gestational diabetes was how many people said, well, so this is how you give a shot. And I'm like, no, I, I got this part. Like, I may not know a lot about a lot of things, but this I can do. Like, I could stick a needle in my ass. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Especially with like the the pen insulin. And I'm like, I don't even have to draw this up. I'm not even like mixing it first. Like, I could do this in my sleep. I know. It's like the... Um... Like, the Azempic and stuff, too, is, like, so easy to, like, give yourself that diabetic medication, which is also used for weight loss, but super easy to give yourself a needle with that. Like, times are different. Like, it's not like you're drawing up a 14-gauge syringe and, like, sticking it in their butt, you know? Like, we've progressed a long ways. Can say I used the blood stop powder on myself once, and I would not recommend. It burns really <laughs> badly, and then it leaves a huge gray mark when it heals. So yeah. I mean, that's how we learn. Right? Stopped bleeding. I mean, so that worked. Well, at some point, too, someone has to be like, hey, let's drink this stuff that comes out of a cow's udder. Like, whoever thought of that, like, was brilliant because I absolutely love milk. You know, so thank God someone tried it. But, like, that's how we learn. Yeah, let's try these things that the chickens just Yeah, like. let's just came out of their butt. Let's just eat it. Or, like, cheese or sauerkraut that they were like, this sat for a long time and now it looks really different. It smells kind of weird. Let's see how it tastes. Like, <laughs> just try it. No, don't do that. Yeah. I mean, that's how we learn, right? We just, we try things. Either it works or it doesn't work. So. So I know you talk a lot about safety on the farm, but mental health is a huge factor in keeping people safe too. Do you, as part of your programs, do you talk about mental health and mental health first aid and that kind, that side of, of keeping everyone safe? I'm actually licensed to teach the psychological first aid as well. Um, so I don't teach the mental health first aid, but I do recommend that one on top of it. But part of the first aid curriculum now is actually like we talk about like mental health and like overdose and stuff, which like super taboo topics, but I'm super glad that they brought them in because they're conversations that really need to be had. Um, and so like, especially the farming community, we come from this generation where it's like, I'm fine. Like, it's just there's no discussion about it, you know, or it's just like, let's suck it up or suffer in silence. And, um, and I always tell my parents too, and like, this is whether it's the farm safety, because I do a lot of public speaking for farm safety, or it's like the mental health aspect of it. And I definitely like those, that presentation overlaps, like hugely, there's really no way to separate it. But I talk to these strangers and I say, if we cannot sit in a room full of strange adults and talk about our mental health and suicide, you know, as tough as that word is, you know, to hear, um, how do we expect better of our children? Like how, how do I know that when my kid is struggling, that they're going to come to me and say, Hey mom, I'm struggling because what's the alternative? And, you know, uh, a couple of years ago in a neighboring community, you know, of course we lost a young boy who was 14 and it was, it was awful. And I mean, that's not the first time something like that's happened. Um, but society has failed that child's, and out here in this farming community, like, it's no different. Like, just because that's not how you did it doesn't make it the right way. I mean, let's be realistic. We used to put heroin in our cough syrup. That doesn't make it normal anymore. Like, we evolved from that. And that is the point is just to be better, especially for our kids. And I know, like, again, it's a really hard conversation to have um, with people or to hear it be said. Um, and I think at some point, too, like, especially for farmers, I think we've blurred the idea that there's a difference between being actively suicidal and like that 
you know, having suicidal thoughts because they're very different. I mean, uh, being actively suicidal, you have a means, you have a method, you have a plan. It's like, that's quite serious. Of course, I tell my students, never hesitate. You call 911. Like, we're not therapists. You can't, typically, it's tough to change someone's mind, but you call for help. But having suicidal thoughts means you're struggling. And it means that you need to recognize those struggles and you need to get help, whether that's lifestyle changes or medication or therapy or whatever else. It really doesn't matter. I mean, um, it, it's different for everybody. And I say, it, unfortunately, it's not a one size fits all. So, um, if something isn't working, like just keep trying. I just, I don't understand how we give up on ourselves so easily. And I know that for us too, it's like, Oh, we, we got to get the crop off. We got to do this. We got to do this. We got to do this. And like, that's great and all, but if you are not thinking straight, you're going to cost yourself thousands of dollars, if not your life or someone else's life. Right. Because you're not in a mental state where you can operate this, you know, equipment properly. And there's a difference between being like tired and like being like absent. Cause like I've sometimes been so mentally, um, wrecked where I'm just like, I'm not there. I'm not present. I mean, that's a form of coping with trauma too, where like your body literally just dis disassociates. And like, sometimes I'm in such a state where like, I'm not present in my body and I'm just, I'm doing things on autopilot. And then it's scary. Cause it's like, Holy shit. Like, how did I do this? Or how did I drive to this place? Like I wasn't even, I wasn't even present for that. Like something serious could have happened. So changing that conversation is really important and talking about it every single day is really important. I know there's a lot of really great programs out there. And of course, you know, Arlene, you'll recognize in Canada, we have the bell. Let's talk. I think it's great, but changing your profile picture on Facebook, like that's not change talking about it is. And if I can't talk about my mental health to my husband or to my parents or whatever in front of my kids, I can't expect better of my children. So, and like, I had a parent challenge me on that once. And like, if you talk to your kids about suicide, you put the idea in their head. I thought that's crazy because the youngest successful suicide I was at was an eight-year-old child. Like, that's crazy. You don't talk to eight-year-olds about that. But the problem is, is when a kid is sad, um, you know, they Google things like, you know, I'm sad. And of course you, what shows up is like the mental health line or the suicide helpline. Of course, being an eight-year-old kid, they're like, I don't know what any of these are. So they're Googling and they're down this rabbit hole of information that they don't know how to navigate. That's not Google's job to educate my kids. That's my job. And whether, you know, old farmer Joe down the road thinks that's the right way or not, it doesn't matter because at the end of the day, we need to change and we need to be better. And I mean, if it's forceful and it like people feel like I'm pushing it down their throat, so be it because my children deserve better than what I had and then what my parents and my grandparents had. And even um, on our own, our old homestead, they always talked about how the well was um, contaminated um, because, you know, one of the family members fell into the well and he died and blah, blah, blah. And of course the rumor was that he like jumped on the well and committed suicide. Like we don't talk that way anymore. Like we call it what it is, you know, call a spade a spade, but it's unfortunate because our older generations were never taught to cope, but we're still not taught to cope. So why are we stopping ourselves from being better? I mean, I do believe that we've progressed a little bit, but in these rural communities, we just, if we can't do it for ourselves, at least do it for our younger generations. Because if our younger generations aren't healthy, the family farm will die. And that's devastating. So, Bailey, I don't know how true this is in Canada. And speaking of, you know, things kids will never find out about if we don't tell them. Um, 
looking at the, I was just pulling up some statistics, the rate of deaths from preventable drug overdoses in the U.S. has increased to 781% since 1999, and that is 92% of the total drug overdose deaths in the U.S. And I feel like when we were teenagers in rural areas, I mean, obviously there were harder drugs, but doing drugs meant smoking weed. And maybe you knew that one kid who had dropped LS, you know, dropped acid once at a party or something, you know. But now, I mean, the the rate of opioid overdoses and especially fentanyl in small towns and wondering, you know, the same thing with that generation, how we were raised, that you don't talk about it because... Good kids don't do that sort of stuff, and if you don't talk to your kids about it, they won't do it, because they'll never find out about drugs or sex or rock and roll or suicide or anything else, as long as we never bring it up. Um, How do we talk to our kids about this? And especially with fentanyl, with the number of drugs that are laced with fentanyl, so kids don't even know that that is what they're taking. Right, like the marijuana or whatever else, yeah. Uh, the, uh, definitely hard conversation. I haven't had those conversations yet, but I've dealt with like teenagers who've done the drugs, right? And like in the EMS perspective, essentially. Um, I think the hardest part is we got to have like really open, candid conversations, but we can't have those conversations until we change that conversation as adults. And I still get really frustrated when I see like the memes that are floating around like on Facebook, which is the cancer of our society. Um, like why is it we're giving free addicts um, Narcan when diabetics have to pay for their insulin? And I have to remind people that's comparing an apple to an orange. So, I mean, if a diabetic's heart goes into a bad rhythm, you're going to use an AED to restart it. Narcan resets the system similar to an AED. So those are your two equated. If you want to compare something to insulin, that's methadone, and that's a totally different ballgame. And then I guess I asked a conversation to those who strongly believe that is, let's pretend that your child, your grandchild, your parent, brother, sister, somebody loved was overdosing on heroin or fentanyl. You would call 911, which is a very normal thing to do. Now, if I show up in my uniform and I look at your child and I'm like, eh, just an addict why would i waste my resources on them like what would you do if i refused to save your child's life when i had the ability to do it this isn't about like addicts and i I use that term very loosely because i think at some point in society we started believing that addiction was a choice which is crazy because i have never woken up in the morning and thought you know what would be fun today heroin like (laughs) that thought has never crossed my mind but then i tell like my students okay so let's change the idea of addiction for a little bit that addiction is so scrutinized but mine is more accepted in society and i'm going to die from my addiction and i'm going to get diabetes and probably lose limbs as a complication of that diabetes and i'm probably gonna have a heart attack by the time i'm like 50 60 years old and that's terrifying for me but it's not enough for me to change my addiction and my addiction is clear like it's food like i am you know overweight um i self-medicate with sugar which i stated earlier and so Um, for someone to say to me, like, oh, have you tried this diet or this diet? Like, that's not my problem. My problem isn't about, I don't know how to eat properly. My problem is I'm not mentally like healthy enough to do that. And if I want to fix my weight, the demons upstairs have to be fixed first. 
And the day that we change our idea on that idea with addiction is really, really important. Um, and not only that, but, you know, they talk about like these losers being addicts and that's just like not true. I had issues with my gallbladder a couple years ago. Actually, it's an ongoing issue for a lot of years. But um, I remember going to the hospital. I was in a lot of pain. Of course, like I wanted to go home. I'd been there all night and I'm like tired. I need to get home to my kids. And I remember the doctor saying to me, the ER doctor, he's like, do you want a prescription for morphine to take home with you? Like, I didn't even ask. Like, that's how easy it was to get it. So, I mean, at the end of the day, I think we kind of like pinned the wrong people, the enemy. And like, I, I, I say that very loosely too. When it's so easy to get this stuff, or for kids to go into grandma and grandpa's cupboard and to like pull a box of Oxycontin or whatever else, or, you know, fentanyl patches. Like it's just too easy to get to it. And kids are stupid. And I mean that in the most loving way. And I say that because I was that stupid kid and like, sorry, mom. Um, but the first time I saw heroin, it was a house party in like a neighboring town. And the funny part about that is like, my parents thought I was at a sleepover at a friend's house like kids are stupid. Like you think your kid's great and that they probably are great, but they're going to do stupid things. I guess at the end of the day, the conversations we have to have with our kids is like, you, you, you want a relationship where they can talk to you and, you know, say these things. And I say to my students too, like if my kids are dumb enough to do these damn drugs, which I pray they're not, but if they are, I hope one of the friends has like a Narcan kit that they can give my child. They call 911 and then they call me for damage control. I don't care about the fact that they did heroin or fentanyl. I don't care about any of that stuff. All I care about is my kids surviving. I can't fix it if they're dead. So this is a conversation about survivability. You know, getting rid of those old ideas is so, so important because even the most intelligent, the strongest, the most beautiful, successful person can still become addicted to something like that when it's so easy to be prescribed it. And after a couple of pills, you know, you, you're suffering from that addiction. And again, you know, kids with those uh, smoking weed uh, that it's laced with fentanyl. And I mean, marijuana is legal in Canada, so it's super easy to get it. Um, I know there's legal stuff, but there's still your dealers and your black market way to get it. So it's not impossible for these kids to get it. And although our drug is... And if they're at a party, they don't know well, exactly whether it was legally obtained or, if, you know, if someone passes you something, then... You don't know whether it's legal or not, right? Like you've, there's no exactly no way to check or yeah. And it's even if it's not an addiction, if there's one time that they get a bad, you know, like one time is all it takes. I know, especially with a high dose. So yeah, yeah, we have to hope that those naloxone kits are available and that the people around them aren't afraid to call nine one one and stay with them and not leave them alone and you know those kinds of things that we talk about in terms of safe use. In Canada, and I can't speak for the states, Katie, but I do know that in the Canada that um, if you guys call 911 when there's like drugs there, nobody can be charged like with possession or anything like that. Like this is an emergency situation. Like they don't want people to not call because of like what could the police could find. Right now, that's not our concern, right? In the states, people have been charged with murder for unknowingly and inadvertently providing drugs that were laced with fentanyl there's unknowingly wow yeah there's a case going on in florida i want to say which florida apologies to any floridians listening (laughs) it's its own world sometimes (laughs) florida um 
yeah, two teenage girls unknowingly provided, um, I think it may have actually been marijuana that was laced with fentanyl and a girl overdosed and died. And they had no idea and they're both being charged with murder for it. Um, I think this all, it all loops back so much to that teaching our kids that they can tell us something's an emergency and they won't be in trouble for it. Yeah. And just teaching them that it is always safe to talk to us and we might not be real stoked about the decisions they made that got them to whatever they need to talk to us about, but that talking to us is always safe because that's... It's hard. Oh, yeah. And I think, too, when you you come from a medical place where, you know, my husband got more painkillers to take home for having one wisdom tooth removed than I got for my C-section. And, you know, and then you have people whose doctor is telling them this is okay to take. And then they wonder how people get addicted. And, well, they're addicts. So like, your doctor said you should take this. You know, your doctor told you to do it. Yeah, it's something they thought was safe and the pharma trusted person. I always tell my students to get really like, like, a little bit uh, combative with this conversation. I say, if you really want some education on this, there's really cool um, two good docudramas right now. Um, one of them is Dope Sick on, I think that's Disney Plus, and Netflix has Painkiller, and both of them are good. It's a good perspective of like why and how this started. And like really like how this or who the enemy really was because it wasn't these people who hurt their backs you know working and like the doctor prescribed them this medication like it's a it's a massive massive conversation it's a massive problem um, and there's so much like misinformation on it and I find that whenever there's controversy it's because there's a lack of knowledge like people don't actually know they're just they're following the trend like this is what we see this is what people are saying this is what we're told to say so yeah that makes sense like you know um forget about the addicts and unfortunately when it comes to addiction you there's two options recover or die and if you are the family member who totally shunned whoever your family because they're an addict and you like weren't supportive whatever that support may look like because it's very different for each situation are you able to cope with that lack of support so like are you able to cope with your decision are you okay with that and i mean recovery is possible i mean i've given narcan to people who showed me their six months sober chip you know so it is possible but and like it could take a long time for someone to recover and it could be you know over and over and over the shitty thing about opiates is that when someone's withdrawing from an opiate, it's their body feels like it's dying. Like it actually thinks it's dying and it goes through extreme pain and extreme measures um, with that. So I guess a good uh, comparison for the older generation is alcohol. I mean, sure it's legal and blah, 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 but I've seen horrible things that people have done while they were drunk. I've seen people drink and drive and kill a family of four. I've seen that. Like I've seen the horrible things that alcohol can do. But the same people who recreationally use alcohol are scrutinizing the people who are maybe addicts when really like there's a fine line here because you think that you're five beers, you think you're okay to drive. Maybe you are. I don't know. But at the end of the day, you're making a decision that could put someone else's life at risk. I mean, that's so different than that, I guess, the girl in Florida giving that drugs 
that was laced unknowingly. Like you, every choice you make has a consequence. Understand that these consequences don't just affect you. It literally affects everybody around you. So be prepared for that choice and be prepared um, to cope with the fact that you could potentially kill someone. One, I think, too, it puts chronic pain patients in such a bad place because they can't, if they are still able to access prescription pain medication, which lots of folks aren't anymore, it puts them in such a bad place for being able to talk to their provider about their experience with their medication or use of their medication, um, whatever else. And they, they're, they're scared to ask for it, right? Because there's such a stigma on it. It's so different than mental health, like pills. You know, sometimes medication can be successful for people. I had a friend who said to me, well, a pill made me feel worse. So I said, try another, <laughs> try 10 more. And I had another friend who said to me like, oh, well, um, pills are going to fix my problem. And I said, no, but they could give you the strength that you need to fix those things. But there's such a stigma on that. And there's such a stigma for people who are in pain to ask for medication. And maybe it like necessarily isn't like an opiate, but something else. But they're scared to have that conversation with their healthcare provider because they don't want to be labeled as a loser or an addict. So now like, we're creating this big block for people in society to get the help. And we're seeing this increased rates of overdose. And we're seeing this increased rates of... Um, like mental health, you know, and suicide and things like that. And in our rural areas, kind of like circling back to that conversation, like there's not a lot to do out here. Like if you are bored, you're going to just do whatever to kind of pass the time. And if it's hanging out with your friends and it's maybe having a couple of beers and driving home, which, you know, again, that's a whole problem too. Or maybe it's like, Hey, let's, try this drug because your friends got it and we, it's a Friday night. Like what else do we have to do? So I mean, having those open conversations all the time about it, I think is important. And the biggest thing too, for teenagers, and I'm just speaking for myself being a teenager is I don't want to be, I didn't want to be treated like I was a child. I wanted to be like treated like an adult and I wasn't an adult by any means, but um, having a conversation with an adult as an adult, giving me the freedom to make my choice likely would have made me make the right choice. Right. So, I mean, it's no different than the abstinence conversation. And I always joke with people too. And I'm like, well, when your parents told you about abstinence, like how well did that conversation work for you? Like it didn't work for me. So, and I mean, I well, probably not have that conversation with my kids. The conversation I will have is like, this is what it is. This is like the shit it can do to your brain. Like it can just totally fuck you up if it's not the right place in the right time. Um, but if it is the right place in the right time, like it's a totally different experience. And it's like being very candid and hopefully with that information and understanding, hopefully my kids do make the best decision. Like um, I have this knowledge and it's not just don't have sex, right? It's just about like, there's a big world around that, you know, emotional and physical. And of course there's diseases and there's risk of pregnancy and things like that. But we just like have a fear-based conversation with kids. I really think they're just not going to listen. Cause I didn't like, I can't, I don't know about you guys, but like, I just, I wasn't going to be told what to do or how to do it as a teenager. Like I can make my own decisions, but nobody gave me the ability to have the opinion or to make or to verbalize what decision that I thought it was, or to ask questions without feeling scrutinized. So, I mean, it goes back again to the mental health or the overdose. 
I want to uh, correct my statement about Florida. It was actually in Tennessee, and two girls were killed in a... Sorry, Florida. Yeah, Florida, you're great. The girl who... Sounds like the girl who provided the drugs also OD'd and was taken to the hospital in critical condition and survived, and she's being charged with murder for the deaths of the other two, which presumably, if she had known that there was any risk of someone dying, she wouldn't have taken it. I mean, yeah, she wouldn't have taken it either. It doesn't sound like it was a suicide pact, so I sure as shit don't see how they think it's murder. It was likely, like, it's a good precedent, though. I hate that that, like, it's happening to a teenager, but if there's a precedent set, then people are like, I have a responsibility. Like, there's a consequence. Like, not just a little consequence. Like, this could change the course of my life forever. And, like, sometimes precedences are good, sometimes they're bad, but... Yeah, like, I can't, I don't know if that would be the same in Canada or not, but, like, these teenagers, they need to know that their choices have consequences. Like, in the farming community, farmers need to know that their choices have consequences. I mean, whether we're taking illegal drugs or we're taking a guard off a PTO, like, it doesn't matter. Like, the two seconds you think that everything's going to be okay literally will change your life forever and I mean that Mm -hmm. happened to me as a child a decision was made something happened and even though it was like a very quick thing that quick decision that incident affected my life for the rest of my life and it's never going to stop and I think that people really forget that when especially with farm safety it's like oh well it's no big deal or if I take the guard off it only affects me that's not true because like if my husband, let's say he loses an arm because he took the guard off a of PTO, that's not just him. That's on me because now I have to pick up the workload and I have to do more at the farm. And he works oil and gas too. So like we're losing that income. So I have to make more money and I have to be more responsible for the kids. And my husband's going to go for more physio. And then there's the multi-generational impacts, right? You know, yeah. it affects the kids because of that. Who is it that found him? Was he working with someone else that affects them? You know, like the the ripple effects of an injury, like we talked before, you know, your injury affected your brother, your parents, your grandparents. It affects your children. You know, years later, your kids are impacted by your health and by the things that that, you know, limit your ability to do things or chronic pain, all those types of things. You know, like, obviously, you compensate as much as possible, but those things still have impacts on you and your family into the future. So, yeah, one decision never just affects one person. It always has has those bigger effects on everybody. And I always ask my old farmers that question, too. I'm like, the decision you make, are you prepared to kill your grandchildren? And they look at me funny, and I'm like, nope, that's just the reality of it. Like, your decision could kill your grandkid. It could kill your kid. Like, are you prepared for that? So, and I know it seems like a pain in the ass oftentimes, like all these safety measures, but they happened or they're there because people were killed because of it or severely injured. Like, again, we're a retroactive making a lawmaking society. Things change because people are injured. So they're not doing this to be a pain in the ass. They're doing this because someone was hurt and we need to change that to protect people because in a moment of just poor judgment or like exhaustion, you might not be thinking straight, right? Or a glove gets caught or something, something you just really don't think of or like never intentionally planned to do. And that really actually kind of hits home, I think, for the older generation is that when they understand that their 
choices will affect you know their future generations and i find it's actually more impactful with like grandkids than it is with kids for whatever reason i guess my parents like my kids more than me which makes sense because they're pretty cute (laughs) there is something about a little person getting injured though right like the that that does hit home and sometimes you have to be harsh right like to 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 say that to somebody i mean it probably and who is it like for anybody to decide my fertility like you know i say that to a lot of them too like someone got to decide whether or not i i got to have kids in a very very a lot of my life who has that right like what makes you think that you have that right more than anyone else and you don't think about like well that's not what I'm doing but it is because my uterus was damaged so now my ability to have kids was compromised because of a choice that someone made and they didn't think it was going to affect anyone else and not that I'm placing blame on anyone or anything like that but we have to understand that this is again like you said the ripple effect and it doesn't stop until we make decisions for ourselves and other people I know Bailey is the the wife of a tractor collector who's the son of a tractor collector, and I also have a small child who is obsessed with tractors. One of the things that has made it a lot easier for us to keep the kids safe is to talk about things before they become even a possibility of the kids doing. Like, we talked about no kids on open station tractors when I was pregnant with the first child so far before it became something that was even a question. And I think that helped so much because it's never had to be mommy saying that you can't go on that ride with grandpa. You know, it's it's never mommy being the bad guy in the moment, you know. Well, if mommy doesn't find out, if mommy doesn't know, that would be okay. You know, and laying down those laws swiftly and firmly with the other adults in question um before it's mommy saying you can't do something yeah and like the blame is placed on you and that's not fair either because you know i'll do something with my kids or i'll lay a boundary it's like oh you're being overreactive or you're a helicopter parent it's like listen i tore from my vagina to my butt to get these kids out i get a freaking say on how these kids are raised and what they're gonna do and what they're not gonna do like I get that right as a parent. You can't take that away from me, whether you agree with it or not. So, and like, yeah, just because we used to do it, it doesn't make it correct, right? So it's very difficult because I remember one time my grandma she was like accusing me of being a helicopter parent at her house, and she's like, "Well, just let them play." And I was like, "Fine, grandma. Then they can play in the fire pit." Then so there they went in the fireplace and they're like playing their soot everywhere. And I was like, "That's on you." Like seriously, like. Yeah, you said. I'm not helicoptering anymore. Yeah, you said you want me to not be a helicopter parent? Fine. Like, do you guys sit over your house now because of, like, that? Like, don't shame me. And she didn't mean it maliciously or anything like that. She was just like, it's fine. Let them play. To an extent. Right? But kids don't have the ability to make good decisions. I mean, men really don't fully develop in their brain until they're, like, 25. So... (laughs) Like, really, like, it's important that we're giving them these guidance and, um, like, again, having those open, candid conversations. And I love that you say that you, you talk to them about, like, what the expectations are and whatever else. Um, but I think it's important to just establish that with your kid to understand that, like, well, this is what mom would not want to do and I need to respect that. And that's really hard. And, like, I don't have an answer on how we could make that 
a little bit easier because you're always going to have like people who are challenging that, whether it's older generations or younger generations. But I mean, at the end of the day, like it's all about the kids. Cause if, like I said earlier, if our kids don't survive, then that's the end of the family farm. Or if our kids have such a bad experience on the farm, they don't want to come back. That's the end of the family farm. And is that what we want to see is all of our farms become corporate? Like, no, like there's just something so magical. Yeah. And so many people say, I'm doing this for my family or family's most important. Well, if family's more important than the farm, then we have to, we have to step up and do what it takes to protect the family, right? Keeping, keeping people alive should be the bare minimum, <laughs> but you're right. If, if, yeah, if, if that doesn't happen, then there is no farm if there is no family. Evolution is totally possible, though, because, like, my dad, he's a prime example of this. Like, he was such a different person when we were kids than he is now. So, like, we would be doing something. We'd get yelled at lots. But, like, again, I don't blame him for yelling at us because that's what he was, like, that's how he was raised and that's all he knew. But then, like, our kids come around and, like, he's definitely calmed down a little bit. And, you know, he's really more involved with the kids, like, than he was kind of with us as children. Um so my kids spend a lot of time on the combines and the grain cart during harvest. So it is not something I like, but that's just a reality of lack of childcare, right? So I can't leave them home. So they're going to be with us. So often I take one kid in the grain cart and my mom and dad both run a combine. So then they'll like, my daughters usually go with them and then they talk in the morning and they decide, okay, this is who we're going to go with because grandma has better activities and grandpa has better snacks. <laughs> yeah. Although it is exactly the same, but grandpa just doesn't say no. Yeah, so they, they negotiate who goes with who, and they alternate, and they keep it fair, whatever. Um, but, you know, for my dad, too, it's just like, you know, he's making sure that they're wearing their seatbelts. If they have to pee, because he doesn't like to help them pee, like, I will, he'll read to me, they got to pee, okay, I'll pull up to the grain cart, park, I'll get them down. Like, he doesn't let them get down on their own. He doesn't let them, you know, do anything like that, which is really good, and I do respect that. Um, the only thing my dad does is he doesn't say no to, like, the treats. So, like, they are constantly constipated because he's giving them a pile of chocolate milk and cheese. I'm like, you can say no. Um, but yeah, like it's just amazing just to see that difference or after so many hours. Pack some fiber, grandpa. Yeah, grandpa. Or don't let them eat their entire <laughs> lunch before 9 a.m. Um, yeah, <laughs> so like even after a certain amount of hours, you know, my dad's like, you know, it's a long day for the kids, you know, like let's call it or whatever. And this year for harvest, this is the earliest we've been done harvest in a very, very long time, which I was really grateful for. But we often didn't go later than, I think the latest we went was like 10 p.m. And sometimes you would go to like 2, 3, 4 in the morning. And it was horrible. And I hated it. And we're so tired. But I mean, my dad's getting older too. And he doesn't like to do those late nights. But like, who cares if we quit early and it takes us a few extra days to finish? Because of the grand scheme of things, like, whatever. And I know there's always, like, well, it gets snow. And that, that has happened to us where it snowed in September. But we got a grain dryer now. So, like, what's the difference? Like, yeah, that's right. You don't have to win. You don't have to beat the neighbors. <laughs> you don't have to be the first one's done. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, and I think that's, I love seeing that. Yeah. I feel like we could talk forever. But I'm going to start to try and, like, wrap us up a little bit. So, what is your favorite thing about raising little people on the farm? Like, I just love especially like with the question of birth when they see that and you're like, well, I wasn't prepared for this, but that's how it happens. <laughs> no better time than right now, I guess. <laughs> and they're just like, they're just such emotionally like intelligent 
and they're compassionate and with especially with like the animals and stuff like that and I do believe that the farm is a very like magical place to raise kids because it's just such a beautiful world that is so overlooked um but yeah I just I love the overall experience I had a great experience on the farm as a kid and I'm really excited that I get to share that with my kids too yeah you know what it's really interesting to hear that you say hear you say you had a great experience on the farm as a kid despite what happened right like that that says a lot that you could have had that kind of injury and a, you know a lifetime of consequences from it and you would still want to I wouldn't change it in this way yeah like yeah. I had my pet cow I had my horse like I had rabbits I had cats I had all sorts of stuff what's your biggest parenting struggle these days and it can be farm related or not like mm, my kids don't listen to me <laughs> yeah <laughs> like ever um it's hard because like we have a lack of resources out here too. Like my oldest has ADD and um, like it's a year waiting list before I could even see a pediatrician and they need occupational therapy services. Again, that's a three hour trip to the city. The hardest part about raising kids is the fact that we are so unsupported in the rural area. Mm-hmm. And I think I like, I stand by that. And like, if I don't fight and advocate for my kids, nobody's going to because the school division doesn't like the government's not going to fight for my kids like I have to fight for them and it's exhausting and it's a battle that's never going to be done fighting but that was the whole idea of me joining the school board was like we have to be better like we just we can't do this complacency stuff anymore and as sad as it is it sometimes it takes the volunteers right and the parents who 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 understand that the status quo doesn't work for everybody we can't just we can't just do what works for some. We, we do have to provide services for the, for the ones who are struggling, too. So, Bailey, we ask all of our guests, if you were going to dominate a category at the county fair, what would it be? And categories can be real or made up. Oh, my gosh. I don't know. My husband always jokes that I'm, like, I'm good at everything that I do. Maybe that's a like possible undiagnosed adult ADD. And I just like hyper-focus and get obsessive about certain things. But probably like karaoke oh nice do you what's your like your go-to song do you have one or do you does it depend on the mood uh it really depends on the mood but I'm actually like I come from a very musical family so like my brother plays guitar really well and you know I, I can drum and play piano and things like that but I sing and I really enjoy singing so that would probably just be like I love anything like from pop to country to share like Perfect. Janis Joplin <laughs> <laughs> That's a great answer. So whatever comes up, you'll sing it. Yep, pretty much. Baby Shark. I'm really good at that, too. <laughs> yeah, maybe not karaoke, but yeah, pull that one out, whatever. Uh, we'll go ahead and move into our cussing and discussing segment. So as listeners know, they can leave a message for us on our SpeakPipe. So go to speakpipe.com backslash barnyard language and leave your own voice memo. Or you can send us an email and we'll read it out for you. But Katie, what are you cussing or discussing this week? True crime podcasts. I love true crime. I love like heist shows or like when hilariously bad things happen to people who totally deserve it and everyone involved is completely fucking inept and it's just like you're just so glad that you don't know these people because you would be so embarrassed to be in any way like associated with them. That's funny. <laughs> but so many true crime podcasts intersperse like heists and people who totally deserve what happened to them with 
little kids Mm -hmm. and innocent bystanders and home invasions and sexual assaults and all these like I don't want to hear about that that's not entertaining to me I feel gross like listening to this for for fun for diversion like it's not fun to me and I don't like having to skip episode after episode after episode trying to find somebody who totally deserved whatever stupid thing happened to them so I really feel like there needs to be like a rating system not only for podcasts even like an instant karma yeah and for like for books are little kids hurt or killed I don't want to read it put a little put a little thing on there does the dog die I you know like the same way they put a a mystery label or like a sci-fi label on a book you want the trigger warnings listed yeah yeah innocent people die list I know like, my husband has to Google movies before we watch them to see if the dog dies because I'm a hysterical wreck. So I could never be a vet. It's like Hitachi. I was a mess for days. Don't watch the movie. It was just, it was a good movie, but it was just so sad. Yeah. <laughs> no. So like make it real clear which episodes are about people who totally deserved it being, I mean, nobody deserves to be murdered, obviously, but some people you don't feel as bad about because yeah and sometimes the criminals are just so bad at it that it's hilarious but i feel like we need a way to separate those from the like maybe that's a very specific podcast there's probably one out there for just the bad guys die yeah you know there's always those like makeup and murder things that happen on facebook usually they like the bad guy gets what's coming to them in those stories. I like the ones where basically everybody is a bad guy so that even if somebody gets killed, you're just like, well, <laughs> we're not really, not really a huge loss. Um, anyway, Bailey, what do you have to cuss and discuss today? Um, I don't know. Just tired of yard work for winter. Winter. That's what it is. We have just so much snow and cold. It is. And I'm like, I'm just like struggling to get all my stuff done before like the snow hits. And all I want to do is just like sit in my house and watch like Love is Blind or The Ultimatum because those are my guilty pleasures. Same, same. Yeah. And it's just like, I don't want to have to like cut trees and breed fix fences and doing all that stuff. But I guess that's the joys of the farm prepare the water to freeze or not freeze as the case may be yeah arlene what do you have to cuss and discuss so i'm going back to one of our previous points in our discussion trying not to bring the 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 vibe down too much but my pet peeve we were talking about facebook memes and it's the one that's like you know we didn't wear helmets and we didn't wear our seat belts and we all survived it's like sure you did yeah you're if you're on yeah if you're on facebook in your i'll say it in your over 60s or over 70s yeah you didn't die from those things but the reason we have those things is because a lot of people died so i mean yeah probably no one died from drinking out of a hose they like to say that one too but yeah the seat belts and the helmets like those are a thing we're just gonna wear those because we want people to live and it's funny the people who are saying that too like these are the same people that are literally giving their money to the nigerian prince so like, <laughs> like and i yeah. mean that I mean that in a loving way too, but like 
it's just they're just old yeah. ideas like that doesn't necessarily make them right or accurate or anything like that and i get that too i get that we talk about you know that safety stuff in first aid and like wear your helmet or you know grandpa's like well there was that one guy and if he was wearing a seatbelt he would have been killed blah 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 i'm like that's cool but like seatbelt accidents mm-hmm. happen less how many people went through windshields and didn't and i like i tell right? the story like i was had an accident once where a guy was speeding down a gravel road no seatbelt rolled the truck went through barbed wire fence because he went through like the front windshield like is that better <laughs> like i just don't understand yeah. how we're like triaging that a little bit of bruising over the shoulder doesn't seem so bad now does it grandpa I'll take a broken nose and a broken clavicle any day over going through a barbar fence. Yeah, absolutely. On that yeah. bright note, we will go ahead and end the call or end our show for today. Uh, Bailey, if people want to follow you online or take one of your courses, I don't know if you do virtual or just in person, but where would people connect with you? Just in person, yeah. Okay. But if people want to connect with you online, um, where would they find you? So uh, I do have a social media page, Bailey Camry, bigger than the accident. But as you guys probably realize, I'm really bad at social media. Like I try to go on it, but it's also like so toxic that I'm like, I need a break from it. Um, But of course, you know, um, I do a lot of public speaking. So I've spoke with CAS of the Canadian Agricultural Safety Association before. I've done presentations with the University of Saskatchewan. And in my youth, I actually worked with the Saskatchewan Safety Council. Um, so the best way to reach me is probably, I guess, my Instagram, Bailey Kimry, or, of course, my Facebook page. Eventually, I will get to look at it. Or I just tell people, like, call me, text me. Everybody has my number. Or, um, like, email me, too. That's probably the best way. Sure. That would be great. Thank you so much for talking to us today. It was really, really informative. And I think that that everyone will definitely learn at least one thing and maybe lots of things from it. So it was a great conversation. Thank you for joining us on Barnyard Language. If you enjoy the show, we encourage you to support us by becoming a patron. Go to www.patreon.com backslash Barnyard Language to make a small monthly donation to help cover the costs of making this show. Please rate and review the podcast and follow the show so you never miss an episode. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok as Barnyard Language, and on Twitter, we are Barnyard Pod. If you want to connect with other farming families, you can join our private Barnyard Language Facebook group. We are always in search of guests for the podcast. If you or someone you know would like to chat with us, please get in touch. 